0: Era during the Indian times uh, when adulterers had their, I think mainly women, had their noses cut off. One of the very early techniques that we were told about. So they used to, they did a technique where they made this whole contraption where they'd lift some skin up off your forearm and put your arm in some sort of brace so that your arm was connected to your nose for a period of time and then. Uh, had their nose reconstructed using that technique.
1: Hey ReFam, my name's Kate and welcome back to Keeping It Real, the podcast that revels in the past. From reconstructive surgery dating all the way back to ancient Egypt to deep plane facelifts in 1916, plastic surgery has a fascinating and gory past. Today, Richard and Kim talk about the progress of the speciality as well as how much the techniques have changed even in our lifetime. And trust me when I say that's very lucky. So, we're going to go into the history of plastic surgery.
0: Been looking forward to this one
1: for a while. Yeah. Um, okay, so, we'll just going to start with the plas- uh, with the basics about the term plastic surgery obviously now if people are, have had a lot of work done people call them plastic and say they're full of plastic um, mm. but i think that's a more cause and effect issue because um, it's actually from a bit further back than that isn't it
0: yeah so comes from the greek word plastikos, meaning to mold that's it nothing to do with plastic at all
1: yeah that will definitely come in handy at a trivia night. Okay, so my dear listeners and surgeon guests alike, uh, the kind of format we're going to go through today it will start to break down um, at different types of surgery and how they've really changed over the years. If this sounds boring to you, let me tell you from first-hand anecdotal experience from talking to these surgeons – but that is absolutely not the case. I think the words "brutalized" and "archaic" are used quite often, and that is not but twenty years ago. Before we kind of get into that, though, I just wanted to give a quick overview, very quick little uh, blast back to you know ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, etc. Uh, because while we might think of plastic surgery as being quite a new uh speciality which obviously it is in the ways that we know it today it is by no means a brand new concept um the first mention of a uh the plastic repair of a broken nose goes all the way back to 1600 BC. So that's ancient Egypt. And then there's reconstructive surgery techniques being carried out in India by 800 BC. Again, for quite fascinating reasons, we'll go to. Uh, And then in ancient Rome, they were also using plastic cosmetic surgery, using simple techniques, you know, repairing damaged ears from around 1st century BC. For religious reasons, actually, they didn't dissect either human beings or animals. So most of their knowledge was actually based on the text of their Greek predecessors, from whom the term plastic surgery, as we now know, developed. In terms of modern plastic surgery, those techniques are very much attributed to Sir Harold Gillies, um, who came around in World War I.
0: A countryman of Kim's.
1: Yeah, Kim's very proud of. Nice New Zealander, who and it says what is it? otolaryngologist? Uh, that's an ENT
2: surgeon, ear, nose, oh. and throat. So, uh, It's it's really hard word to say. Oto- yeah, laryngolog- <laughs> not Um, Russia. but uh, he and his cousin went to the same university that I did. Oh, really? Yes.
0: And a, he was also a plastic surgeon.
1: Yeah, his cousin got into skin crafts, which we'll also get into later. But yeah, but he obviously came into power—or well not power—he <laughs> 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 took on
2: world power.
1: Came into plastic surgery power in World War One when men were being disfigured f- um facial injuries. So 11,000 operations were performed on more than 5,000 men, mostly soldiers with facial injuries, usually from gunshot wounds.
0: Can, can we go back in time a little bit? Mm-hmm. So you alluded to sort of the Indian era. Yeah. And uh, I think all of, all of us probably in our training get taught about this, sort of this era during the Indian times uh, when adulterers had their, I think mainly women, had their noses
2: cut off. Of course the w- the women were punished. Yeah. yeah. Of course I mean, so. <laughs> no. No, I've been reading no, a lot no, of no Greek problem.
1: mythology recently and let me tell you, yeah. women not had a good run of it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so if, if a woman had committed adultery, uh, <laughs> they had their nose removed. And obviously that was quite a strong... Nose obvious, a bit a of stigma, stigma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so, uh, so there, that that was. I think most of us, when we we're learning about plastic surgery, that was one of the very early techniques that we were told about. And oh,
1: so when they're on the forefront of rhinoplasty, it's yes. the removing of noses, well, as nasal reconstruction, nasal reconstruction. Shushruta, sh- that's the name. Yeah, that's yeah. In yeah, my yeah, head yeah, that's
2: it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, so um, they used to, they memory. did
0: a technique where they made this whole contraption where they'd lift some skin up off your forearm and put your arm in some sort of brace so that your arm was connected to your nose for a period of time.
1: Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. Mm. That has really stirred some deep, deep knowledge in me.
0: So that was mainly in women um, who had been accused of or committed adultery and had their nose cut off as punishment. And then uh, had their nose reconstructed using that technique, which is like a, like was a technique that is like I have actually seen used in mm. like in really, really yeah, so. extreme cases.
1: That is so abhorrent.
2: Yeah. But then, yeah. And then that technique was made much more famous through the world wars. Um, yeah with the facial disfigurement. And the ones you were talking about, World War One was a gunshot, but World War Two were the um, pilots where they often had burns of their faces. Mm. Yeah. Um, You'll love so this. The guinea yeah, pig club. The guinea pig club. So that was um, uh, Archie McIndoe. McIndoe. Yeah. yeah, and so he was the famous. And all these men, um, what's the name of the town in the UK that they were at? That were that they were at. Was it? Okay. Okay. Um, and so they would all have these staged, multi-stage procedures to move skin either from their stomach to their arm to their face. Called? Walsing. Yeah. Walsing pedicles. Just ex-
0: you go. Explain how that happens because it's, it's unbelievable. Mm.
2: So you can lift up a uh, piece of tissue and keep it attached to where it belonged from and, um, And you have to get the dimensions right because otherwise if you make it too long, um, so ideally the width will give you twice the length. um, And so then that should stay alive. And when they were doing it, they weren't basing on on any sort of blood supply, which we know a lot more about these days. And so they would lift up this piece of tissue and then – kind of tube it or it usually so if you wanted to get a big piece from the abdomen you couldn't really join it straight to the nose (laughs) so Mm. they would stitch it to their forearm initially and then the end of it would then get a new blood supply from the forearm so it would have to sit there for three four weeks and so these men are in hospital for a really really long time they've got horrendous facial injuries and they're all down at the pub um you know, recovery, drinking yeah. every day with m- many of them that are all in between their procedures. So once you've had hey, that, Isaac,
0: Just to interject, st- at this point, their arm is connected to, to their, their tummy. A- tummy by a tube of skin.
2: Yeah. yeah. So then it gets a new blood supply um, from the, the end of it, from the forearm. So then they would disconnect it from the tummy and then join it up to the forehead or the eyelids or the nose or wherever they had lips, had burns on their face. And then again, I'm demonstrating. (laughs) (laughs) And have their arms like attached to their face. Um, Again, for another three to four weeks until that then got a new blood supply in its new spot. So the bit that then's attached to their face was originally where it joined to the tummy. Um, And again, down at the pub, having a few drinks. and, And then finally it would get... Um, divided and then sometimes many, many stages after that because obviously it's a big chunk of skin from the tummy and eyelid skin, for example, or lips are completely different. So then they would riff once it had taken and healed. So it's quite different to a skin graft where a skin graft you're actually just shaving off a piece, like a thin layer of skin and you're putting it onto tissue that has a healthy base. Mm -hmm. So... um. These, they need full thickness of tissue, and that's why I'm talking about eyelids and noses and lips because you've got nothing. You can't put a skin graft onto teeth or (laughs) the eyeball or bone. Um, So you need the layers of the skin, and you need it to bring a blood supply essentially with it. Um, So, yeah, phenomenal type of type of procedures and they really sort of made it up yeah. as my understanding as they went and try and figured out how to you know these young fit healthy men that have um often it's just their faces that are burnt or um, yeah. hideously disfigured hence
0: uh, the name the
1: guinea, guinea Peak Peak club. club yeah i just kind of want to um extend on what you said with the skin grafts there um could okay so you might remember earlier we referred to uh, Sir Harold Gillies. Correct. Or is it Gillies? Um, yes. And yes. so it's mm-hmm. his uh, cousin that we're talking about, Archibald McIndoe. McIndoe. And so where Harold kind of came to um strengthen World War One, this is all happening in World War II. Um, and so he's treated very deep burn and serious facial disfigurement. So, yeah, like you said, loss of eyelids. Oh, I'm just imagining it. Hand from the eyelid. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you need to come to the theatre more, Kate. Oh, well, know. Obviously, we don't do these. Well, exactly, things, we don't. I think
2: like everything would make it less. You weird.
1: would think that like watching somebody's like Fresh essentially rocking. doing like a corset of somebody's abdominal wouldn't be considered a palatable surgery. But the more that we talk about like what's happening in different times and other parts of the world, I realise. But I'm just very desensitised to, like, abdomens and breasts and now it's like people are shaving (laughs) off legs. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, what you said is, like, where they started with skin grafts. So how kind of – do you know how long that process of where they were relying kind of quite heavily on what they knew um, about just, like, attaching blood cells? Like, when did that start to change into our modern understanding of skin grafts?
0: So – Okay, so we're talking about two different things here. Mm. So, we're t- Kim's talking about a flap. Let me just okay. go back in the archives okay. and describe the difference between a flap and a graft. Mm-hmm. So, a flap is where we transfer tissue from a donor site, so where it comes from, to a recipient site. And it's reliant on the donor site, mm-hmm. so where it's coming from, for the blood supply. Okay. A graft is where we transfer tissue from a donor site to a recipient site and it's reliant on the recipient site, so where you put it, so as Mm -hmm. Kim was saying, the healthy blood supply, it's reliant on the recipient site for the blood supply. So what Kim was talking about before, that was a flap. So Mm -hmm. it was moving, but we were transferring where the blood supply was coming from. So a skin graft where we shave a bit of skin off, say, the thigh Mm -hmm. and put it somewhere else – that's then relying on where we put it to 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 grow in, and there are clear phases of um, skin graft take um, uh, where the blood supply gets established. So,
2: as you said, like a lot of that was done, and a lot of skin grafts were done in World War One, but they've been around for a long, long time, and. Skin grafting is still the mainstay of a lot of plastic surgery. It's the mainstay of burn surgery, mm-hmm. um, a lot of skin cancer surgery, and the grafts. I think have probably been refined and techniques, and people are a lot more careful with their tissue handling and a lot more aware of where you're placing their skin. Mm-hmm. But you know, th- the very similar techniques now that have yeah. been used for over a hundred well over a hundred years and a lot of it probably hasn't changed a whole heap. So whilst we kind of think we're we're very modern and lots of new things um, and there's there's newer tools so there's um, mechanical um, tools that um, think of a shaver with a blade that goes really rapidly from side to side that Mm -hmm. takes off the skin graft whereas um, definitely when McIndoe and Gillies were doing them they were using a... A knife in their hand that they were having to control, and
0: so that—that's the difference between the fundamental difference between a flap and a graft. A flap is bringing its own blood supply, so you use that in situations where the defect doesn't have a good blood supply. So that might be the nose, it might be the eyelid, it might be a burn, Mm -hmm. uh, and you need or or a a breast reconstruction, and so you need to bring blood supply with it because it's not going to. It's if you use a graft. Um, it's not going to establish a blood supply, so it'll die and, not, and then you won't have a reconstruction.
1: Gotcha. Um, I think one of the really important um, things outside of his kind of surgical prowess um, was Mick was uh, focused really heavily on um, recognising the importance of the rehabilitation of the casualties in terms of social in reintegration into normal life. So would... Um, he disposed of the convalescent uniforms that they were kind of forced to wear, and just let them use their service uniforms. And then had a lot of friends where, like, patients would like uh, he'd ask locals to bring them to their homes because obviously they were just horribly, horribly disfigured, um and just c- trying to help with that transition. Which I thought was really nice.
2: Mm. Yeah, it was really cool. And like, it was I, I was I wasn't joking when I was talking about that. You know, these guys were. We're down at the pub and socialising, and yeah, you know, a completely different mindset to being locked up in a rehab hospital with, um, you know,
1: like-minded people. Yeah, and just being like othered mm. and kind of yeah, yeah. That's really nice. Um. Okay, so we'll kind of go back to new jobs, which is where we all started with the flat. Um, I, when I said that India was now. A <laughs> I feel bad. I'm like, India was really the hub. But now I feel like a bit guilty about
2: that. Well, they had to learn <laughs> yeah, had to how to fix the holes that these people had. There had to be had easier to ways, like, created. I not know, not
1: chopping off their noses. Um, but British physicians were travelling to to India to see how they did it um, with Joseph carpew spending 20 years in India studying plastic surgery before he took um, the first major rhinoplasty to the Western world in 1815 which is so they were set in India by 800 BC, so a huge leap between those two times. But I just thought it was really interesting that there was such a big focus on nasal stuff before really anything else. Um, I guess it's the most
2: prominent part that people see, and yeah, that, uh, there is a lot of um, people that are self conscious about their noses out there, so and obviously. <laughs>
1: Back in the day as well. Yeah, and I guess, like, you know, obviously like breathing issues and everything, so what they're doing. Um, I've spoken to you, Richard, before about your experience with rhinoplasties mm. and what it was like even compared to when you started surgery to now, which I think is very interesting to share.
0: Yeah, so uh, rhinoplasty, when I uh, started training, was all what's called closed rhinoplasty. So it was quite a quick procedure, Um uh, you'd basically put a chisel on the inside of the nose, smash off the hump, which would tear all the mucosa, um, and then uh, uh, do two little uh, breaks in the side of the bone um, and then uh, actually crunch the two bones together. So it was a very quick procedure and very little attention, detail, attention to detail with the anatomy and the cartilages. And everything scarred up internally, and often long term, those patients never breathed again. And long term, it would all just collapse, and they would just get these terrible deformities. Um, and then
1: you said that very calmly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I wasn't
2: part
1: of it, so <laughs> so we smashed their faces, the smithereens. Yeah, and pretty much. The no, no pretty it was a pretty brutal
2: operation. Yeah, and yeah. again, it's one of those, you know, oh, you know, less invasive. Yeah, uh, inverted commas that it's gotta be better because you're not making a cut and you're not putting yeah. a scar on the nose and but you're also not seeing what the heck is going on inside there. Um and yeah, yeah. everyone got the same, yeah. Yeah. same thing. And <laughs> then the probably uh, it.
0: in the early two thousands it, it moved to an open rhinoplasty, which became a more common procedure and um the whole procedure you could then see what you were doing, there's much more focus on the cartilages and basically rebuilding the entire nose um, back to or creating it in, in the way that um, it ideally should be looking. Um, so it became a much longer procedure, um, a much more technical procedure, um, and but results were far superior and more long-lasting.
1: Yeah, and I, I just – guys, I'm just thinking about how detailed rhinoplasties are, like as we know them now and how it's kind of this thing – then it's something that people look at every single day. So it can like mm. – you know, it has to be very, very like nuanced and massive attention to detail. Just the
2: and if of, like, we, smashing it, We should put a photo on this of the internal anatomy, the, yeah. the bones and their cartilages because the cartilages are super complicated. So if you feel the tip of your nose – um, and the edges of your um, nostrils, it's all made up of cartilage, which, mm. it, unless you've had a really bad rhinoplasty, <laughs> it, if you squish it, it bounces back up again. But there's yeah. really complex twists to the, um, there's sort of four cartilages that make up that tip, and then there's another big one that's in between your two nostrils. So it's a really, really complex area, and if it's overdone, um, or too much of that cartilage is taken out, then the whole thing collapsed And and even subsequent to, like in this millennium, like you know, I always say in the states, and you, you see pictures of celebrities and stuff, and um, like really overdone, and they've they've just had too much tissue removed, and yeah. they look ridiculous. And obviously, Michael Jackson is like one of the the um, shining examples of a nose that essentially just had had too many operations and. Like, he, he basically needed a full reconstruction. Like, you, yeah. you, one of your flaps to bring in new skin and needed needed everything being to rebuild it because yeah. it, so much had obviously been removed. No, you just think about how much you must struggle to breathe. Oh, oh my, no chance.
0: Well, I think that's a good point. The difficult aspect, the, the increased challenge with the rhinoplasty is that it's also got to be functional. Yeah. And so, you know, early, early on in my career – there was virtually no attention paid to f- the function, whereas now you, you can't do a rhinoplasty not consider the function, and so there's often a lot of work on the septum, the turbinates, but also uh, difficult to explain without visuals. But uh, there's a there's a key area in the nose which is important for airway and and airflow, and if you compromise that, then you you'll you, you won't able to breathe properly um, and that that was not really appreciated until you know, maybe uh, 20 years ago.
1: That's so insane to think mm. of, like how many people get rhinoplasties because of a deviated septum or whatever, like they're already having trouble breathing.
0: I think that's a bit of a sort of a misconception. I think uh, a lot of people who are having a rhinoplasty. Yeah, it's, <laughs> <too bad>. <laughs> it's, su- it's
2: for breathing, it's for airway, but, but, su- but, but it's super important to, yeah. to think of that as like because – yeah, even a patient that's coming in purely because they don't like their palm pour, yeah, the, that is purely for aesthetic reasons. It's so have to breathe. If they, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If they can't absolutely. breathe afterwards, it's yeah. um, it, it's a lose-lose.
1: Um, next I've got facelifts. So the first facelift was performed in 1916 um, by a Dr. Eric Lexer, a German surgeon, a former sculptor. Oh, that's nice. This was a proper lift procedure, so the skin of the face was lift, lifted from the underlying fat, redraped, and then pulled tighter. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so that was that was the predominant procedure until probably sort of the seventies or eighties, where it was called a scook procedure, where it was really just lifting the skin up, um, it's like silence, and know. then pulling pulling, <laughs> pulling tighter, it pulling it tight, pulling it tighter, and then. Uh, stitching clothes and it's interesting there's a little bit of a trend back towards that type of approach oh really um what is it currently well it it then evolved people then sort of realized there was a a layer under the um uh, skin called the smas layer which is part of the the deeper tissues and people would tighten that Mm -hmm. um, which would then pull the skin with it um, and and the nerves are then well below that and then actually a Melbourne plastic surgeon, Brian Mendelsohn, um, he then popularised the deep plane facelift where he lifted up that that layer and then he was right where the nerves are and pulled that layer and so realigned all the ligaments and the deep tissues. Um,
1: um, like
2: really deep. So not just peeling off the skin. Not off just peeling all the layers below that yeah. as well and tightening them up.
1: And because I know you've spoken about how like people like, you know, they get the um – Scars behind the ear, yeah, is that with all of them? Like they would yeah. all get stitched up behind there, uh,
2: and the, in front of and behind the ear. Okay, so st- that original procedure that you were freaked out about from 1916, I just that, like that's still of the basis food. of th- that. Still, what happens to the skin? So yeah. there's still excess skin is lifted up and pulled tight. Yeah, and yeah, as Richard said, like people have tried to figure out ways to keep it there because mm. this is an operation that I think looks really good at about a month yeah. um, and there's a lot of things that drop like gravity always wins and it, yeah. it's one of the areas that I think you it, it's a big operation in a visible area with potentially mm. visible scars and oftentimes not significant long-term results. Um, compared to something like a tummy tuck or a breast reduction where you're like, you know, you've had that, you, you're done. Like it's yeah. it's fixed. It's not going to recur. Whereas a facelift, I think, and you kind of have to walk around yeah, <laughs> here a little bit and see people that have been overdone or um, Google Demi Moore recently. She's got a massive groove in her cheek. Like yeah. mm. there's – so they're, they're – Trying to pull things tighter yeah. causes deformity to the mouth, the corner of the nose, eyes. Um, and other really common giveaway is um, the bottom of the earlobe. So if so if you're pulling the skin, trying to pull the skin backwards but you stitch it to the earlobe, it'll pull the earlobe sort of forwards and it's called a pixie air because it <laughs> lose the shape of your earlobe. So it looks a it, massive giveaway. Sure, her
1: face is fun. Look at her weird he ears. Yeah. No, seriously. So...
2: Yeah, Yeah. sometimes if you're like in airports or places where there's lots of people, trams and Mm -hmm. public transport, uh, and you can see sitting behind, like those are places we tend to sit behind someone, you can see these scars and it's like, (laughs) that's a really bad facelift just right there in front of me.
1: Yeah, because it says it's bit likened to a wind tunnel look, meaning the facial skin is particularly tight and taut. So 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 the big
0: danger is that you either overdo it Mm. and then like, You know, maybe ten years down the track, it starts to look, (laughs) catches up, and it looks, it starts to drop a bit, and looks normal again. Um, Or you underdo it, um, which is probably the better side to err on, um, to get an improvement, but it's it's not um, abnormal. So it's 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 an important operation to make sure it still looks natural, Mm. um, and gets an improvement
1: all right then breast surgery i don't really have any fun facts about but oh Oh, i have a fun fact oh tell
2: us (laughs) so breast augmentation is something that has evolved massively over time um and not so much in the last 30 years um but uh one of the original things that was used to try and make a breast bigger was a lipoma so that's a benign fatty lump that some people have. Um, and so a patient had one and was like, oh, I want this lump gone, but I want bigger boobs. So they transplanted it into <laughs> the breast. That was like an actual technique
1: or that just happened well, once? It, made I it think up. Was
2: a, have made it up. And here's the thing. It's yeah. almost certainly not going to work very well because as we talked about earlier, plastic mm. surgery 101, that tissue, when you put it somewhere, it needs to have a blood supply. So – a big lump of fat is not all going to survive because the blood's just not going to get. <laughs> it's not going to get. Maybe they split Choose it. Choose your favorite. <laughs> um, the the outside of it, it will get some blood supply, mm-hmm. um, and not the inside of it. And and that's actually a conversation not about transferring a lipoma, but I have yeah. with patients that are asking about fat grafting for breast mm-hmm. augmentation. Now, is that you know it, it's not like. You can't put – it's not like polyfiller. Like you can't pick a size and put yeah. that in. You have to – every little fat cell has to have a blood supply. So yeah, it's course. much more tricky than that.
0: No, but on, on top of – the 70s. 70s. But on top of that, um, the way they were constructed, they were made out of two halves and so there was a seam. Oh, and so man. that was a weak point. Yeah. That's why they used to rupture. Oh. So they had thinner shells and a seam.
1: How do they make them now?
0: <clears throat> it's just – it's one piece.
1: Well, they well. still have to put
2: – it can't be one piece. They still have <coughs> to put the gel on and the mm-hmm. They still injected? have the – the plate's still put on the back, but it's um, more modern technology and they don't – it's not a weak point Yeah, Yeah.
0: yeah. So there's been basically five generations of uh, breast implants mm-hmm. and the last sort of significant change was probably in the 1990s, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it's been pretty stable now for – over twenty years, the type of the the implants, yeah. Um, so the ones that we use, for example, the technology and the gel hasn't fundamentally changed in in that period of time.
1: Um, what about bre- Like breast reduction, how is that has that changed significantly even while you've been surgeons?
2: So I think in the last probably five to ten years, like people are much more focused on the aesthetics and how it looks at the end, whereas maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was like you've got massive breasts, let's just make them smaller and make you comfortable and it wasn't so much about – sure, they were a lot more comfortable but they didn't look that great. Mm. Um, Whereas now um, we focus – yeah, absolutely, it's an operation done for pain relief and making people a lot smaller but there's a greater focus on the long-term outcome and making a nice shape and and creating not just the nice – medial cleavage lines but the outside part of it as well Mm -hmm. um making sure everything and sometimes i my approach is that it's it's like almost like a chest wall Mm -hmm. um operation it's not just a breast because you got to deal with the underarm and sometimes around to the back as well
1: does there seem to be people because obviously it's like when you know in these earlier operations we're talking about people just kind of like trying to figure it out as they go and they're kind of constantly challenging the status quo and like reworking stuff and whatever does it feel kind of like that now is there any surgery you're doing now where people are kind of constantly trying different techniques or there's like a lot of conversation about things that could be done differently or does it feel pretty steady
2: I guess you kind of like the more you do of something you refine things a bit more like Mm -hmm. in a breast reduction talking about trying to create that outside shape like I always used to have this one stitch that I'd be like, this is the key stitch, this is my favorite stitch. And now yeah. I actually have two of those <laughs> that, <Yeah. laughs> that I kind of think, like, this is really what I think is creating a really good shape, yeah. like, the way I do those two main sutures. And I think yeah. it's just, you just, it's not major changes. And I probably mm-hmm. did them before, but possibly in a slightly different order. You just kind of refine and, um, you know, there's things that I, I was saying to you the other day, Richard, that I'm doing a lot more upper back lift combined with mm-hmm. breast reduction just to try and contour that whole area.
1: Yeah,
0: I think a lot of that actually um, comes from social media and fashion. And so for me, a lot of, the, say, the lower back lipo comes from sort of a greater understanding of, okay, I've done a tummy tuck, but people still have fullness in their lower back. And so they can't wear sort of low, lower cut jeans because they're sort of restricted by or pants because they're restricted by where the fullness is at at the back so sort of uh understanding um uh you know what sort of clothes that people are wearing and uh so that you then sort of advance your techniques to match that um and then sort of a better understanding of proportions and aesthetics and balancing the chest and the torso and things like that i think we should pay tribute to um, Melbourne's contribution to mm-hmm. plastic surgery, which really has been significant. So if you go back to 1973, and we are talking earlier about um, grafts and flaps, and so one of the sort of something in between is what's called a free flap, where you're taking tissue from one site to another site, but you're actually plumbing the blood vessels into the recipient site, mm-hmm. which is called a free flap. The evolution of that was a better understanding of where the blood vessels were. So Mm -hmm. surgeons started to understand where blood vessels were and then they could sort of dissect them out and then um, some of the instruments and the technology caught up and then you could actually detach the vessel and then reconnect it using um, very fine sutures, sort of about the the size of a a human hair. But that all actually started in Melbourne, Australia and there's a bit of a story about it because there were two competing hospitals St Vincent's Hospital mm-hmm. um, and Royal Melbourne Hospital and as the story goes the the um there was a, an overseas fellow who I won't name but he became a famous rhinoplasty surgeon down the track he was working at one of these hospitals who developed all these instruments mm-hmm. but he was also working at the other hospital and there was a there was an actual Sort of race mm. to be the first hospital to do the Russia first Russia versus America to get into space, sort <laughs> of. So to do the first microvascular free flap. Oh, okay. And so they all both camps were ready to go, and they were waiting mm. for an appropriate patient. And the Royal Melbourne had a patient, but they didn't have the instruments. And this guy was working across both, and he knew the other place had the instruments. Yeah. And he, th- as the story goes. Took the instruments in the dark of the n- of night,
1: <laughs> smuggled <laughs> down his pants.
0: Correct, and took them to the other hospital. Mm. Did the operation, and they published the paper like immediately because they knew the yeah, other group. Yeah. They and had it th-
1: ready or written. They were yeah, just waiting for the details. R-
0: correct, and they then did did they then did the second one like weeks later. But that all actually started here in in Melbourne, and then. Um, you know, Wayne Morrison then went around on to do the first wraparound um, thumb reconstruction, where he took part of a toe with its blood vessel and nerves, and then reconnected it and, and made a, a thumb out of out of the toe without but taking. Have the they lost their toe. thumb? Put completely. your thumb
2: beside your big toe right now, and you know they're not a terrible match. Yeah, everyone Speak playing along yourself. at home. <laughs> 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 it wasn't Wayne Morrison that stole the instruments, though. Just to no, make, he didn't. Just to no, make that no, clear, he not, was yeah, the
1: head no. of one of. We yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <The laughs> only say names for the good things on yeah. this yeah, yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Do you know what the patient was that they did that first surgery on?
0: Uh it was a groin flap.
1: I have. I, I believe
0: honestly, so I didn't
2: know the story about the instruments, but I, I knew the oh, two yeah. hospitals. Yeah, yeah. But the other amazing thing is that those researchers were uh, they were when they injecting the blood vessels as well and then watching the where each blood vessel what chunk of tissue yeah. it was supplied so then they could figure out or well, if we could take this chunk of tissue on those little blood vessels then mm-hmm. that's going to survive whereas before what i was talking about the the walsing skin it was all random, random. So they didn't really know why it was working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And and then certainly certainly there's parts of the body where there are a lot more of those blood vessels. And so once we know where they are and you can actually include that into your um, tissue, it makes life a whole lot easier. So you've got to
0: understand, like, you might see a blood vessel, but you don't know the patch of skin that that's supplying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'd done all the, obviously, the studies. Because those flaps were done as pedicle flaps beforehand. So... They were known flaps, so the -hmm. the blood supply territory was known, but no one had actually disconnected it and then reconnected it elsewhere. Now, just to add to that mythical story from Melbourne, I have actually met and spoken to the fellow... Mm. who is the guy who stole the instruments from one hospital and took to the other. I met him at a rhinoplastic conference. Did he maybe. confess? <laughs> <laughs> a rhinoplasty Abso- no, he confessed like, that he did. Absolutely. It. But then the first then they, they did the same thing using bone. That was also mm-hmm. here. That was um, Ian Taylor. Um, and then um, breast uh, reduction, mm. the pedicle, that inferior pedicle, um, that was the original pedicle that we was common in Australia, that was also credited to a, a plastic surgeon. Uh, in, in Melbourne. So Melbourne's had a very, I mean, not to discount New Zealand's uh, <laughs>
1: They've got Dr Harold Gillies. <laughs> and McIndoe
2: and, and his cousin. And we actually yeah. still use two mm. forceps that are named Gillies and McIndoe forceps. You oh. use them in theatre. Yeah.
0: Did you ever theater. use the Gillies needle holder? I did, yes. Yeah, it's I got scissors
2: it. incorporated into the needle holder. so See, you, um, don't, you don't need an assistant.
1: Our new <laughs> mission is to get some... Gillies, needle holes. No, 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 to get some um, equipment named after you guys.
0: Yeah, that's not propping. (laughs) (laughs) More likely to be a coffee machine for me. (laughs) And a bike for Kim. (laughs) The Taylor bike. That's... Huh? Huh? It's got a ring to it.
1: If you liked this episode of Keeping It Real, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why don't you have a flick through our past episodes? We'd love to hear your requests for future topics, so send your suggestions through to us on IG at Surgery. That's all for today, and we'll catch you next time for another peek into the world of plastic surgery.